Hello, my name is Justin McClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about Robert J. Flaherty, the director of Nanook of the Norse. Thanks, everybody. That was our episode of the podcast. Ah, feels good to be back here in first year film studies. <laughs> That's right. It, it's exciting to, you know, these issues about uh, documentary ethics have been going on for almost a century now, and we're going to settle them. Film 101, first movie we're going to watch after we saw uh, The Great Train Robbery <laughs> is going to be Nanook of the North, the one that everybody will skip. The, he, now, here is a filmmaker that if you've seen his films, it was probably in, at gunpoint, u- at gunpoint <laughs> in university. Yep. Uh, the man who is credited with inventing the documentary film as we know it. Even though that technically he just made the first financially successful feature-length documentary film. And also, documentary? Question mark? Yeah. So, Robert J. Flaherty, explorer, worked for places like National Geographic, loved to do stuff in foreign places. Like have sex with people in foreign places have common law wives with people in foreign places yes. listen if you're cross state lines it's not illegal right yeah what happened <laughs> what happens in uh, northern quebec stays in northern quebec so he ended up exploring the inuit people in northern quebec as will just mentioned or as he called them eskimos which is not a politically, politically correct, correct term, term yes. so we will not be using it on this podcast okay i just want to give some historical context you know <laughs> listen it's part of our heritage and we should be able to say it <laughs> we'll forget about the past if we don't use Plus, it in the you, present yeah not saying these words <laughs> is the same as saying they never happened so yeah <laughs> and so over a period of almost a decade, he shot footage up in these frozen territories. Uh, the first version of the movie that he made actually burned up. Because he dropped a cigarette on it. And nitrate is incredibly flammable. But but he went up there and he was uh, in awe of the Inuit people and their simple lifestyle, their strength against... Uh, unbelievable obstacles of weather and landscape. And the fact that they had two wives, which were actually Robert Flaherty's wives at the time. Yeah, he's, he, he noticed that uh, morality was different <laughs> up there, um, and, and he liked it. <laughs> so Nanook is a humble Inuit hunter. Uh, not with, his real name. Not his real name. Uh, with his family, who are not his real family. Uh, they were, He had a wife and child who were chosen by Flaherty for their photogenic qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Nanook as he uh, uses a spear to harpoon, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, a seal? A seal. Mm-hmm. Um, although the, the real guy would have used a gun at this point. Yes. We see Nanook, not really Nanook, build an igloo. Which, to film inside, they cut in half to get enough light to get in there. That's some film school 101 shit that I learned. The igloo building scene is one of the most famous in uh, early documentary cinema. I liked it because you see Nanook cut out a hole in the igloo and then put a big block of ice there and boom, you got a window. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. I like the part where uh, they all got clown car out of the boat that pulled up. That was nice. Uh, and we're just going to list all our favorite parts of Nanook of the North. There's a part where Nanook is shown a gramophone for the first time and you see him giggling with glee as he listens to the voices emerge from this mysterious contraption. Although in real life, of course, he had actually heard gramophones before, so this was staged for the camera. And that most of the crew of the film were Inuit people who knew the camera better than Robert Flaherty did. So this is a fraudulent depiction of a simple people uh, who did not actually exist at this point. Nope. And what I think is interesting is that many people who discuss this film are able to rationalize this 
um, very easily. Uh, and I don't quite understand how they're able to do that. It's probably the idea that, well, it was an early documentary back in the day. They hadn't figured out documentary form back like then. Like real or stuff like that. And oftentimes you hear people talk this way about, like, the Bible. Yes. You know, where they'll say, uh, oh, the original audience for the Bible wouldn't have taken it as literal <laughs> truth. But I, so that's assuming that the audience watching these newfangled movies were smart enough to understand that this isn't what was really happening on screen and that it was engineered for the cameras. Well, the concept of journalism existed in yeah, the 1920s. Like, that's the thing. Is that, yeah, you would assume it's real. Robert Flaherty wants his audience to believe it's real. And yeah. the fact that it's not probably made him go, ah, shit. I mean, he's, he was apparently like open about it at the time mm. right like w w I, at least that's the sense that i got like he he said that well maybe he said it when he was pressed but, <laughs> yes <laughs> but, but he talked about some of these tactics but you know a scene like the one where nanook sees the gramophone for the first time the whole pleasure of watching it is, is that you believing that it's real yeah and seeing him laugh and uh and seeing that unguarded reaction but it's not real so one of the ways that people rationalize the movie is by saying, well, okay, uh, Nanook would have used a gun to catch the seal, but the fact that we're watching him use the harpoon, like, we're watching him use the harpoon on the seal. Well, like you said, it's the idea of tricking the audience, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also the idea of watching this exotic thing, because that's what the audience is attracted to. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the documentary realism of this happening on screen. Mm -hmm. It's, wow, they're not like us, are they? Mm -hmm. Which is different and a little bit of unsettling in the context of Robert Flaherty is presenting it. I mean, if there's a difference between um, Robert Flaherty and people like Jack Petty and Prosperi, who did the Mondo movies, which are also like often staged mm -hmm. and condescending. It's like you sense that Flaherty loves these characters. Yeah, he shows. does. That's, I mean, that's the big difference mm -hmm. is that he's not exploiting them in a way to hurt them mm -hmm. and that he actually enjoys spending time with them and wants to tell, in his eyes, mm -hmm. the most digestible version of their story. Yeah. Because there's nothing dramatic about uh, a man going to shoot a seal in the head with a gun. Well, he's, I guess he's moved by the history of, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the, the history and culture of, of these people, even though it no longer existed at that point. Now, would, would you feel differently if he it was credited not as a documentary, but as a like fictional film telling the story of these Inuit people? Because it would be completely different then, even if it was the exact same movie. Yeah, it, the, the whole meaning of it would be different. For, if it were a fictional film, I'd probably find it a little boring. Yes, I mean, like all of Robert Flaherty's work. So when I picked this director, I thought there would be a few classic films that I could explore and discover. Why did you pick Robert Flaherty? I, I, as I explained yeah. last episode, I bought a book about <laughs> a the diary of the editor of Louisiana Story. And my logic was, man, Louisiana Story just got um, restored a few years ago. This book was published. There's value in this. This is going to be great. Then I watched Louise's Anna story and it's a boring non-documentary about how much oil companies are awesome. Okay, I watched half of it. Um, I watched half of it in uh, Second Cup on the way here. <laughs> Because I was out of, I, I was out of town this week and I was really squeezing in some of these movies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Listen, this is the, the real truth <laughs> that you don't hear from most of the people that talk about film, right? Yeah. Can you imagine Justin Rosenbaum ending a review with like, well, I barely watched this my, movie. My dog ate my homework this week. <laughs> so I watched enough of Louisiana Story in the coffee shop to know that it looked good. Yes, it looks fantastic. It's a beautiful looking movie. Uh, in the book, the editor talks about how 
very precise. Robert Flaherty was about getting some scenes. It's shot in the swamp. So you see all these beautiful... (laughs) And you were watching it on your phone, too? No, on my laptop. Oh, okay. That's better than... Yeah. (laughs) You know, on a tab with Facebook open. (laughs) (laughs) The Robert Flaherty heads are like, what? (laughs) I thought they were going to give the respect to this director who has a handful of feature films that he deserves. Well, this is what's great about doing Flaherty is because he has no fans. No, he doesn't, does he? Like, he has no fans. I mean, (laughs) he's kind of the uncredited director of F.W. Murnau's Taboo. Which is, like, mm. probably, other than The Nook of the North, his big film. And also, like, the the F.W. Murnau movie that no one wants to watch. Exactly. <laughs> the one that doesn't have all the cool, stylish visuals and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, Flaherty directed a bunch of other feature films, like Man of Iran. Which I watched and paid attention to, unlike the Louisiana one. And so. did you enjoy that one? Um, Not especially. Pretty images, though, right? Pretty images. Okay, so... Nanook of the North was a massive success uh, Huge. in 1922 because people thought that it was real. Yeah, and they're uh, seeing something that they've never seen before. And so the Hollywood studios said, hey, this guy must know something we don't know. Let's get him to make another film about um, uh, a peculiar, isolated uh, civilization. And I should point out as well that even at this early stage, the motion picture was kind of thought as a trivial thing, like a mm. cheap entertainment. Mm. And the documentary, even to this day, at that point, felt more real. Mm. Like, this is important. Uh, the the um, guy who founded the NFB, John Grierson, coined the term documentary and wanted to make sure that movies can matter and they can tell stories. And these films can can act as an educational tool mm-hmm. to introduce audiences to cultures they wouldn't otherwise see and perhaps make the world a more peaceful place. Yes. And they can also be very boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I have pretty images. So, yes. um, uh, so after the uh, runaway success of Nanook of the North, uh, a studio, was it Fox? Probably. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Listen, they, you checked it on your phone on the way from Starbucks? They, uh, they hired Flaherty to make um, Mo- Moana, mm-hmm. not to be confused with the Disney Dwayne The Rock Johnson hit, uh, which chronicled a South Sea civilization. Now, Moana, I have a history with because I saw it in my University of Toronto documentary film class projected on a 16 millimeter print with no music. No music? No music. And as our teacher explained to us, well, I know that was a tough sit, but you know, sometimes it can be interesting to just watch the images. No, no. <laughs> These movies were not meant to be projected silently. Play them with sound. You know, until recently, this is a bit of a digression, but until, I, I think it was, uh, who's the guy who ran the Cinémathèque Française? Henri Langlois. Yeah, yeah, Langlois. He believed that silent films should be re- projected without music. And I think to this day, or at least as recently as a few years ago, the Anthology Film Archives in New York still doesn't project silent movies with music. Well, that's wrong. I know. Like the filmmakers intended their movies to be showed with music. So I remember I had a, a really tough afternoon at the anthology once watching a Ziga Vertov movie with Ugh. no music. God, what, what a fucking slog. <laughs> but, so, so I had a similar experience with Moana. Yeah, pretty images though, right? I Well, I, on the scratchy 16 millimeter print, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Long live digital cinema. But anyway, Moana did not capture lightning in a bottle like Nanook did, because why would it? Like, people thought it was cool to watch that fucking seal get harpooned. <laughs> They liked seeing him put the ice in the in the igloo. I think that Robert Flaherty talks a lot about in interviews that I read with him that he was always looking for the dramatic kind of center of his movies. Mm-hmm. And like with something like Nanook, you have it there, which is a 
foreign family dealing with the modern world and you get to watch how they also live their life in ways that are very different than us mm-hmm. while you know when you have to do that over and over again moana doesn't quite hit the beats that nook does mm-hmm. that it doesn't have the same appeal and because his films aren't super engaging <laughs> that I can understand why it was difficult for him to make other films. He was, may I say, ahead of his time because there just wasn't a industry to support the kind of films that he was making. Mm. It would take way longer before places like the NFB would dedicate themselves to making documentaries, completely uh, influenced by Robert Flaherty. The other film that I watched this week was Man of Iran, which I guess is probably considered his second best film, mm-hmm. right? Um, pretty Images. Uh, this movie follows a family in an isolated section of Northern Ireland where the ground is mostly rock and where it's very difficult for them to grow the potatoes, which are the uh, sustenance of the Irish race. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we often see them, um, you know, trying to do the, the goddamn best they can with this rocky ground. We see the kid le- teaching himself to fish. We see men in boats and filling the holes in their boats with uh, what looks like paper mache, but isn't. We see many uh, low angle shots of noble Irish people standing with uh, evocative cloudscapes behind them. Uh, did you see them? Yeah. <laughs> did you see them? Did you see the movie? Yeah, I watched it. Didn't like it very much. Well, but okay. It, it has a real sock finish, though, doesn't it? Like, powie, wow. This, uh, these three men in a boat in uh, the coast as these massive waves are crashing against the shore and it looks like they're going to die in this fucking little boat being tossed around by the sea as their relatives, who, of course, aren't their real relatives. Yeah, you got to be as dramatic as possible. Flaherty was a goddamn charlatan. <laughs> But they're on the shore watching this and uh, worrying that their their husbands are going to die. And I'm watching this thinking, well, you know, these people did risk death for my entertainment. So, yeah, it feels wrong for me not to like this. <laughs> it's like a Jackie Chan like reaction to a movie. Yeah, <laughs> except he's more fun. Yeah, they do all their own stunts. I thought Man of Iran was also kind of funny because it was shot silent, but then it was uh, dubbed later. So the version I saw at least had this like strange dialogue that was added that sounded like Robin Williams and Popeye like <laughs> muttering under his voice. <laughs> Well, I have nothing else to say about Robert Flaherty, like, other than pretty images, fairly dull movies. And, uh, you know, uh, if you go to film school, if you go to documentary class, I, you know, my my U of T documentary class. If we ever do an important man, cinema club uh, syllabus that we teach in university, we should start with Nanook of the North. It's a good thing that university um, film classes exist to keep Robert Flaherty's films in circulation. I do remember renting the Criterion uh, DVD of Nanook of the North back in the day. Did mm-hmm. I rent it? I, I, I probably rented it to catch up on film studies. Yeah, film studies. And I remember that it had an interview with Flaherty's widow. Not one of his Inuit <laughs> win- widows, but his, his white widow. Yeah. Because uh, he, he's rolling three bitches deep. <laughs> Uh, and she is very elderly in mm-hmm. in the featurette, and she talks about how uh, the reason that Nanook of the North has survived is because 
Um, well, not the real Nanook of the North. Yeah. He died of starvation a few years after the movie came out. <laughs> but the reason his film has survived is because viewers watched uh, the film and spanning all nations and creeds and all times, and they look into the eyes of Nanook and they see his happy face, and it touches them in a deep deep level in their heart you know why the film has survived because it was the first documentaries and when you're teaching a class you should start right at the beginning yep that's it yep and because uh there is so little inuit representation on there's film. nothing like i was looking to see i'm like well you know nanook presented a world that we don't usually see in films and it's true it like yeah other than uh the filmmaker zacharias kunuk who directed the uh Atanerjuat, the Fast Runner film, mm -hmm. which I think the Weinstein brothers may have released. It was like a fairly yeah. big indie label. Uh, other than which was recently voted, was it the greatest Canadian film of all time? Yeah, that TIFF. I believe yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though that uh, director's new film has not been released yet, okay. Uh, uh, his take on the Searchers, which sounds fascinating, I would love to watch, but. No but, release. But, but he's one of the only other directors yeah. who has who has visibly represented uh, Inuit communities in movies that, mm -hmm. you know, have got a wide release. And occasionally Nanook will get revived Inuit artists trying to reclaim it with like yeah. their own soundtrack. There was a new um, art installation recently, mm -hmm. wasn't there? That I do not remember the name of the artist. Uh, I don't know that, but I do know that TIFF, in fact, commissioned a new score to the film, which is how I watched it this time with an Inuit throat singer doing the music. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. Uh, if you want to watch the Nook of the North or you want to watch the Fast Runner, watch the Fast Runner first <laughs> okay. and then watch the Nook of the North. Watch, watch the Nook of the North and crossed off your checklist. Before we uh, <laughs> before we leave this topic, uh, tell me about the book you read. Or uh, did you even read it? Louisiana yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Um, but there's not that much to say other than the fact that Robert Flaherty was a very dedicated man who was obsessed with getting certain shots in movies mm -hmm. and that he had no problem uh, making a movie about how the oral company is really good. Okay. I wish that you could have seen that last half because that's how it ends, which is like, you know, you may be afraid of oil companies coming to the swamp and destroying stuff, but really they're very eco-conscious and will make sure that everything will be all right, if not better than they arrived. Oh, wow. Oh, stands to reason, I say. <laughs> so I knew that we weren't going to have that much to talk about Robert Flaherty about two days after I proposed this topic. So I asked Will, let's talk about documentaries, because it's not a subject that we talk about very often on The Important Cinema Club. Is there a good reason for that? We're going to crack to the bottom and find out after this ad for Casper Mattresses. <laughs> no. Folks, are you tired of going to the post office? <laughs> <laughs> Blam! I shit my pants! <laughs> Guys, I'm very tired. <laughs> I went to the CNE yesterday, the oh. X in Toronto, the big fair that happens during the summer, and they don't sell any more physical media there. No oh. more DVDs, no more Blu-rays. It's very sad. Oh, too bad. But you were so you've been talking about that for like for the last year. I've been so excited. Yeah. So excited. So uh documentaries, how do you feel about the genre? What are your favorites? Uh as far as the genre goes. Not really interested in them that much. Really? Yep. If there's like a, if someone says a new documentary is great, I will watch it because, you know, I like great things. But as far as someone saying, hey, what new documentaries are coming out? I don't really care. Well, there are, there's a lot of draws because there are so many like talking head documentaries. There are so many documentaries that are kind of like, 
you know, if you're a fan of the subject, um, then you, then check it out by all means. I'm trying to think of when my weird prejudice against documentaries started. And like it, the idea, I think it was probably when I moved to Toronto of the culture around them and how people talked about how important they were. Or I would talk to someone and go, oh, I don't really watch movies, but I do watch documentaries. The idea that they are more important than other films because they're documenting real life. Okay, so you're, you're a populist. Yes, obviously. Give me my Michael Moore's. That's a documentary and I want to watch. Well, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people talking about documentaries, uh, if we're going kind of the stereotypical yeah. uh, uh, straw man approach, yep. will say that they're boring. They're and, not. Uh, Doesn't necessarily mean that they're yes, boring. Yes, but that but that's the other popular attitude towards them. Mm-hmm. By the way, speaking of Michael Moore, in that documentary class, uh, I feel like every discussion about documentary ethics would immediately get derailed with Michael Moore because anytime anything would come up, somebody would say, oh, well, Michael Moore did this. Well, he's a popular documentarian, right? Yeah, and like, it, with no ethics. So like, yeah. uh, at, at every, there came a point that when we had to institute a rule of like, it's like Godwin's Law. Like, yeah, you can't, if Michael Moore comes up. You can't bring up Michael Moore in as a precedence, mm-hmm. you know. But what do your favorite documentaries because surely you've seen something you like films that have come out recently wiener fantastic so good yeah i believe it was on my top 10 list last year uh you have documentaries like you know you can go into errol morris the sin blue line great documentary Mm -hmm. what do you look for in a documentary i look for something compelling that's the main thing that i want like stories that i'm interested in and can get into the idea of the realness of what's being presented is really not that important to me it's just a storytelling that's why loose change is my favorite documentary (laughs) (laughs) because you know as long as a doc but because that's the thing right is that life is inherently not compelling in a narrative fashion yeah and when documentaries do take that path i feel immediately suspicious so are you not a fan of say the fred wise school of documentary filmmaking that observational documentary i do like the observational filmmaking but i I, honest i haven't seen that many fred wiseman films i've seen um did he cut follies Mm -hmm. and that's i think that's pretty much it well when i think of a lot of the documentaries i like i think of you know a filmmaker like uh werner herzog oh of course who who, it's it's not so much i mean so much and i mean seeing the the world through his eyes and he is super manipulative with his documentaries as well yeah and that doesn't really bother me because yeah because it's it's true to the way he sees the world and i'm not quite sure how to distinguish that from what robert flaherty does Mm -hmm. Um, but i i believe the distinction is there well i think that probably when i look at a documentary what's probably the most important to me is that if it's a documentary about a person Mm -hmm. that their personality comes out Mm-hmm. Because even if they're inherently in situations that have been contrived, that their reactions are probably what's the most important, right? Mm-hmm. But then again, you have documentaries that are about particular subjects mm-hmm. that like span like Enron, the smartest guy in the room, mm-hmm. which is more about a topic and a few people instead of specific personalities. Yeah. And then there's something like... like- you know, not to use the Godwin's Law example, but something like Fahrenheit 9-11, mm-hmm. which is ostensibly a documentary, is more like an op-ed. Yes. Um, I, I One documentary filmmaker I'll cite that I like, um, not Michael Moore. Yeah. You I've have ta- a I've whole ta- podcast series about, about Michael that. Moore. <laughs> Uh, but I'm I'm an admirer of the films of Nick Broomfield, who I believe is a uh, somewhat divisive figure. Uh, are you familiar with him? No, made, I'm not. Uh, his best known movies around these parts are probably he's a British documentarian of the. Kind oh of like, yes, yes, yes. He just made the new documentary on um, Whitney Houston. Yeah, yeah. But that's uh, his. He's more of a kind of Michael Moorish figure, but not not a liberal populist mm-hmm. like Moore is. Uh, his big thing was going around. Uh, 
like he did a film about uh, Biggie and Tupac's murder. He did a film about Kurt Cobain's death. He uh, recently he made a film called Tales of the Grim Sleeper about a Los Angeles serial killer of black prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I so many of his documentaries are essentially diaries of their own making, mm-hmm. where you see him as this sort of like bumbling detective, at, where th- through his own um, seemingly clueless presence, he's able to get people to say things they wouldn't otherwise say or he's and he's able to show the reality of the worlds from which these you know iconic or notorious figures have mm-hmm. come up and the sort of like hangers on and the uh the weird people who surrounded them yeah and when you said nick broomfield i actually got him confused with the uh, documentary director adam curtis did you see oh, hypernormalization yeah. yeah well that that's in that op-ed yeah. uh, school yeah <laughs> which is fantastic if you haven't seen it you can check it on the internet it's mm-hmm. a very long documentary and what adam curtis does is actually take a bunch of disparate kind of found sources mm-hmm. to tell a story and to define a theme over multiple hours that are never boring mm-hmm. do you think rockumentaries count in this discussion uh you know rock docs yeah uh, it's weird that I just use the phrase rockumentaries <laughs> without any irony. But like when I think of my favorite documentaries, I guess something like Don't Look Back with Bob mm. Dylan would be a more traditional documentary. But does something like Stop Making Sense count? Well, Stop Making Sense is more of a concert, like, concert film. film. But then if you have something like... But Stop Making Sense is a document of a specific... Like yeah. moment in this band's career and these people are real and what they're doing is real yeah. and it's and when an you extension watch, of their personality and when you watch them on stage like you get everything you need to know about the band mm-hmm. from that performance yeah well you know I, at the same time they are doing a performance but it like you said is capturing a moment in time so you could probably put it in the documentary category mm-hmm. for everybody who has to write a report on documentaries and is like I don't know what to pick oh I'll pick Stop Making Sense that's a, a documentary right when you first said like pick your favorite documentary the first thing that popped in my mind was Nathan For You <laughs> which is not a documentary although it is isn't it, it is yeah. yeah because it's can we talk about Nathan For You like what other opportunity are we gonna get sure let's do it which if you don't know what it is it's a TV show where a man named Nathan Fielder goes out and helps businesses. Mm -hmm. But what he's really doing is giving them terrible advice to see if they will follow it. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the funniest things of all time. It's mind-boggling. And some of the stuff that he does is, like, highest-level performance art. Yeah, but the way that people are reacting is real in the sense that they know that TV cameras are there. They know that they're being filmed. And it's almost like... I don't want to say it's tricking them, but it's the idea of what is that famous test where they're pushing the button and they're electrocuting someone? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's a social experiment. It's a social experiment because they think because the cameras are there that this is okay. Yes. That what they're doing. Yeah. Which is fascinating and brings up that question of like, you know, the direct cinema idea that when you introduce a camera in an environment, it instantly changes that environment. So it's technically not real anymore. Yeah. And this is something also uh, to cite another TV show that's not a documentary, but is a mockumentary, mm-hmm. The British Office. Yeah. Um, which I think is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you get the sense that the Ricky Gervais character, his entire downfall comes from the fact that there is now a TV camera there. And he's somebody who 
had aspirations of being a performer, put mm. it aside, was able to function reasonably competently. But the minute you put the camera in there, he's yeah. constantly performing for the camera. <laughs> yep. And that leads to him, you know, being terrible at his job and being fired <laughs> and having a lifetime of failure. Hey, 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 he had that Ricky Gervais movie where he came back. Didn't you watch it on oh, Netflix? Oh, Dave, David Brent? Yes. yes. Um, Not good? I thought it was awful. Yeah. Uh, just, ter- just fucking terrible. <laughs> We kind of buried the lead a little bit because this is really a lead up to Will's favorite documentary of all time. So I just saw a film called The Real Cancun, which uh, I proposed to do for a premium episode. I could not find a copy to save my life. And then it that, has been wiped from history, pretty much, unless I would have bought it off Amazon. Which, which you I, can get for 75 cents on Canadian <laughs> Amazon. So, And I encourage you to because it's an extraordinary film. But you saw it at a, an interesting venue in New York. Oh, yeah. I went to this place called The Spectrum. Theater, which is this 30 seat storefront theater in Williamsburg where they apparently just show like whatever shit they want on AVI files, basically. Um, And it was five bucks to get in, which I think was the right price. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I saw th- this film, this... Was there other people there? There were, I think, uh, 15 other people at this... Oh, the, at midnight? Yeah, at midnight. The The other midnight movie I saw during my trip, a Filipino superhero movie called Darna and the Planet Women, was... <laughs> much less attended oh, okay uh, but the the real cancun if you haven't heard of it is an extraordinary film because it was an attempt at a reality movie which is transposing the aesthetic of the reality tv shows that were so popular at the time to the big screen and one of the ideas behind it was that television had certain limits on what you could show and now that we're on the big screen rated r baby and so what that means is this movie takes place during spring break it's from the producers of the real world and so we follow um i think 15 uh young dumb and full of cum early 20 somethings as they all uh navigate the sexual politics of being in a big house together and so we see the r rating comes from the fact that we see a wet t-shirt contest which quickly becomes a no t-shirt contest whoa baby (laughs) hell yeah and uh in some absolutely abhorrent scenes we see uh hidden camera footage of people having sex in their rooms oh my god so it's really (laughs) up there with on the prowl when it comes to on the prowl is my documentary recommendation also for this uh, starring jamie gillis and and this movie it, i mean famously it was shot during the iraq war yes it was which you know you couldn't have a better background yeah. than that and this movie is like uh, spring breakers or dirty grandpa without any irony whatsoever and it's the kind of movie that i feel like had i seen it in 2003 i would have regarded it as like an affront and we have to fight back against this. Mm-hmm. But now that it's failed and now that we're, you know, almost 15 years. It was it everywhere out, when it came out. Do you remember how many oh, ads there oh, were yeah. for? Holy shit. Like it was, and it seemed like the barbarians were at the gate. We've got to, <laughs> we, like, we have got to beat this back. But now that it's failed, now that we're so far it's nothing. from it. Like you can't, you can't watch it if you nothing. wanted to. So I had a great time watching it because okay. it is so like, it is so base. It is so indefensible. Yeah. Um, it's like utterly, uh, shit utterly shit and, and morally repugnant and morally repugnant and so once you meet it on those terms you can kind of have fun with it snoop dogg is in it <laughs> makes makes cameo and, but i was watching this movie and, and thinking that it was marketed as the first reality movie and people were so offended by that concept but bowling for columbine yeah. which was an academy award winner at the time is basically just an extension of the awful truth you know it's it's a it's a prank show movie with no thesis it yeah. just goes from one topic to the other and you know supersize me how is that not a reality movie? It's yeah. like a gimmicky thing. And also the Jackass movies were popular at the time. So 
And, you know, Jackass obviously isn't as esteemed as Bowling But it's that idea again of the documentary being corroded, right? Yeah. By saying like, it's reality television. It's like, no, but documentaries are pure and they're good. Yeah. And this is shitting on them. And Bowling for Columbine took on a very weighty seeming topic, you know, gun violence and the culture of fear. Super Size Me was against... Um, Big um, fast food corporations. Yeah. So that seemed very worthy. But uh, The Real Cancun is just a film about dumb young people fucking and so it's thrown aside as yeah. not being important yeah when really who was your favorite character will alan taylor <laughs> i don't know who that is because i haven't seen it alan taylor is the beta of the group who um <laughs> learns to be- become a man and and <laughs> drink and fuck so did i did i identify uh that's uh that's the question that's right? the question check out the real cancun that's my recommendation on the robert flaherty episode <laughs> I don't remember what I call this episode Robert Flaherty and the Real <laughs> Oh man, that's great. Do we have any letters? Well, yes, we have one letter this week, and it's from Graham Blackaby. He goes, Hey guys, love the podcast. So a funny thing happened recently where beloved film Twitter personality Lex G poked some oh, mostly yes. light fun at a YouTube video essay I made about David Coop in a tweet. And that tweet was faved by none other than Will Sloan himself. Oh, shit. <laughs> and that's when it hit me. Will would not like my YouTube channel at all. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know that. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm making a face on my side of the microphone. First of all, I think I think you should be taking this up with Lax G, not with me. <laughs> and the letter continues, especially these days when it's mostly about superhero movies. And while I enjoy that genre more than Will does, I have to admit the reason why it dominates my channel is because that's what gets the clicks and enables me to make a living oh, online. God Whoa, damn. this guy makes a living online on his YouTube videos. You know who doesn't make a living on <laughs> this podcast? <laughs> You know what? You should be writing in tips on what we should do. <laughs> hey, could you make a video just highlighting us and saying how awesome we are yeah. and how people should listen if, to a podcast? If you can find it in your heart to forgive me. <laughs> Will will watch all of your videos. And I'll say nice things about them. I'm sure they're very good. This needs to get clicks is obviously bad for cinema, though. And I was wondering what you guys thought about the current state of film criticism online. I know I've been pretty cynical ever since the Dissolve was unable to turn a profit and shut down. Do you think there's any hope for outlets that cover smaller indie fare and old movies? Is there any outlets you'd recommend? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for expanding my film horizons. I've learned a lot from the podcast. P.S. If nothing else, I managed to plug Detour in one of my videos about huh. Batman. So at least there's that, Graham. Thank- you know what else you should plug, Graham? <laughs> the important Cinema Club. Well, th- thank you for being a better man than I would have been uh, <laughs> if I found myself in that situation. Uh, you must know that I like uh, probably about 20 of Lex G's tweets a day. So you were collateral damage in that. I'm sure you're a very nice person. I don't know who Lex G is, and I will continue to keep it that way. I don't think you'd like him. No, I don't think no. so either. So film criticism online. Is it dying, Will? Um, I mean, it's probably pretty hard to make a living off it. Yeah. I think that the issue here is that the sheer quantity of stuff that's available mm-hmm. and the fact that a lot of it is not good. Because if everybody has a voice, then the voices that are the most coherent and have compelling points to make kind of tend to get lost in the shuffle. But the thing that people have to remember is that those voices are still out there. And that while it's a shame that a site like The Dissolve doesn't exist anymore, and it was an awesome website, did you used to read it? Yeah, yeah. I liked it. I liked it. And the thing is that like reading the site the idea of like what could they do differently to like make money is one that i don't have an answer for 
Boy, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm slightly encouraged by the fact that a lot of these places have um, these these like Patreon accounts. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, aside from us, but a lot of the places have Patreon accounts that uh, are are successful because what it shows is that people are willing to pay for content if if they think it's good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see a lot of you know magazines like Newsweek or something like that struggling, and it's because nobody particularly likes news. Yeah, it's not the it's idea. Not, it's not very good. But like people, for example, who love Chapo Trap House mm-hmm. or something, are giving them seventy five thousand dollars. They're giving them a lot of money because because the 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 service they provide is valuable to them and offers insight. So that's why I I sometimes think that maybe like all this stuff about the death of uh, media or something mm-hmm. like that is overstated. Yeah, I, but, I, but having said that, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of co- content, to use a terrible word, is niche. Yeah. Undeniably. I mean, we've talked about this in terms of DVDs, uh, physical sales. I had a friend who recently said, physical media is dead. And physical media is dead in the idea of the mass market, of making a lot of money on one thing because you can fool or just, you know, get people to buy some dumb Hollywood film mm. for like $30 and people just don't want to do that anymore but they will pay like $32 for Taboo 2 and 3 because yes. there's a bunch of special features and it's all about targeting that audience and finding a system that's small enough that you can't have a big organization to do it. I think the Dissolve probably folded because there was a lot of people working for that mm-hmm. website and it was well-designed and I'm 100% certain they paid everybody very well in the way that it went about. And in this current climate, mm-hmm. ugh, I hate to use that word, yeah. is that the websites that are going to probably raise up are going to be ones that are very personal visions of a few specific people. Or they there will be websites that know how to pander well. Yes. So like... Those, those. Like, <laughs> Will's more cynical take on the idea. Well, I mean, so the kind of guys who do like sort of clickbaity superhero videos, but are actually kind of good, are mm-hmm. the red letter media people. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their videos are pretty smart and thoughtful, um, and and offer coherent criticism. The ones who do it badly are like those, uh, you know, everything wrong with uh, yeah, cinema sins or stuff like or that. On, honest trailers or that sort of like nitpicky garbage, which which get clicks because. You know, people feel smarter than what they're watching. People feel smarter than what they're watching, or like they get to see clips from a movie they like in any, in any context. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. hey, I'll click that. Um, yeah. And all of a sudden, boom, you got three million views. And it's the idea also that like what people want to read is mm-hmm. that they want to read lists. Yeah. And they want to see stuff that they already know. But then, and then there's stuff like the nostalgia critic or something like that who his main service that he provides is, hey, remember this? Yeah. Here's a clip from this. And now he... Did you hear he's not allowed to show clips of stuff anymore? Is that true? Yes, it's wow. true. It's been a long time since I checked because in. Because he's... Uh, I mean, I someone told me this, but because he got so many co- copyright notices uh-huh. that he just had to stop completely. You know, I think there's... I know for a long time he used to argue fair use, but yeah. I mean... like I don't think so. Let's face it, he would show like a third of the movies <laughs> in those videos. I imagine he does Be Kind, Rewind, like uh, recreations <laughs> of the movies that he does. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... It's easy to say, like, ah, criticism is dead. And you hear that all the time from every outlet ever. Mm -hmm. And 
I think there's more good criticism than there ever has been. Yeah, probably. But, but there's also more bad criticism than yeah, there ever has been. Yeah, there's just a lot more of it. One benefit to the internet, I don't know if this is really to the writer's point, but one one good thing is that readers no longer uh, have only one critical opinion at their disposal. Mm-hmm. So it's not like Bosley Crowther uh, <laughs> reigning over New York mm-hmm. as this like dinosaur. Like if you get a bad Crowther review, your film is finished. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many people you talk to that go, I don't read film criticism. I can make my own opinion. Yeah. Which is like, no, it's if you read somebody, and you read a bunch of his articles, you'll understand what critical faculties he's utilizing. And if his mm-hmm. opinion is something that you can trust or if he gives a coherent point. Mm-hmm. So it's just like it's out there. You just have to find it. Yeah. Anyway, you're you're you've come to the right place. Happy Fort Cinema Club. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want to send us any questions or comments, uh, email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And on this week's Patreon episode, we talked about American Psycho and, and the career of Mary Heron, its director. So for five dollars a month, you get to listen to that episode and every single Patreon episode we've recorded up till then. And if you keep paying that five bucks after that, yeah. And you know, if you're like. One episode is enough of these two white Caucasian men talking about movies. But I sure do love their podcast. You should give us $5 on the Patreon anyway. Because if you do, you're not only supporting us, as we talked about before, but you're also going to get a chance to win contests like the one we're about to pull out of a hat right now. So we're going to pick the names of the people who are going to win these amazing prizes. First up is a copy of of the movie that I re-edited and subtitled. Unavailable until now. The person receiving it will be the first person to see it in the entire world. All right, so you ready to pull it out of the hat, Will? All right. And the first winner of this is Tyler Balthrope. Congratulations. Now the second prize is all the copies of the zine for the Laser Last Film Society that I've made which include writing from Will Sloan. All right, you ready, Will? All right. Pick it again. And the winner of this one is Michael DeRaff. Hey. Awesome, Michael. All right, the final prize, and obviously the most important one, is a mystery prize, (laughs) which I will still not reveal. You'll have to see what it is when you get it. And a unopened copy of a 1995 Batman Forever trading cards. There's five cards in this package. We don't know what they are. Only the winner will. I'm looking at it right now. And the winner of this one is Jay Crosby. Thank you very much for everybody that entered. So if uh, we picked your name out of a hat, please uh, contact us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Send your mailing address, uh, some sexy selfies, perhaps. No, No, do not sell it. Don't don't send those. Just the mailing address. (laughs) Yep. So what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, Stephen Chow. Yes. uh, One of my favorite Hong Kong comedians. Uh, He's the man who directed such films as Kung Fu Hustle, Shaolin Soccer, and has starred in what feels like a hundred other comedies. You've seen almost all of his films. I have. He was one of my gateway with the Hong Kong cinema and he's one of those actors that's kind of dabbled in everything Mm. while at the same time being famous for a comedy style that I cannot understand because it's mostly wordplay thankfully he does a lot of visual comedy as well You have seen some of his films? I've, seen, I've probably seen like 10 of them over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I like him. We're going to be watching God of Cookery and probably one of the ones he made uh, for Wang Jing, probably forced by the triads at but, the time. But probably a wide-ranging discussion. Mm-hmm. I hope you got your fill of Robert Farley. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> we sure did. My name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So something happened this week, Will, that we joked about and that you've been dreading for a long time. The death of uh, the former Joseph Levitch, also known as Jerry Lewis, at age 91. The catcher in the rye himself. <laughs> as Jerry Lewis told Peter Bogdanovich, you've never seen a more Holden Caulfield kind of guy that's sitting across from you right now. Now, this is something that you've actually been afraid of happening. I think we talked about it in a previous episode. You saw on Twitter he was trending, and you were like, oh no, has he died? But no, he just said something about women. So. <laughs> yeah, but this time he actually died. Uh, it kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, except that... He's you know, old. Yeah, he's 91. We all knew it was going to yeah. happen. He looked in bad shape, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's easy to like uh, make a joke about how, well, he had so much great work left ahead of him, mm-hmm. or you know, something like that. Um, but... One reason why I think his death is sad is because he really is, along with Don Rickles, who also died this year, one of the last links to a certain era of filmmaking. I mean, like Don Rickles, he's symbolic of a certain kind of like Rat Pack Vegas era. Uh, He's also someone like, you know, he grew up in vaudeville. Mm -hmm. He knew Al Jolson. He knew Charlie Chaplin. He uh, was a superstar in the studio era. You know, so he's he was just like one of these pillars who was a living link to those eras. And now that's gone. Yeah. And and, and it's a shame. In addition to being, you know, a very distinctive uh, filmmaker and a great physical comedian. Do you think that this will cause like a reevaluation of his work or? Well, I've, I was surprised that most of the response to his death, uh, there were a lot of tributes to him. Mm-hmm. And inevitably there will be the woke takes or the, uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, you know, he was Jerry, overrated takes yeah. or, you know, blah, blah, blah. For, but there was less of that than I expected there to be. Mm-hmm. So, And I actually think that in the last 10 years or so, Jerry Lewis has become more fashionable amongst cinephile types. I, I, he made films like The Ladies' Man that are undeniable, like, yeah. visual masterworks. Like, even if you don't find him funny, mm-hmm. like, he was such an inventive and strange filmmaker and... Uh, Try, tried so many weird things that like you've gotta you've gotta respect him at mm-hmm. least and and like even the people who don't even like that had some something nice to say about the king of comedy yeah which is probably his best performance because he didn't do drama that much so no uh, extraordinary performance probably my favorite movie of his yeah or uh, of, of all of, time of, of all time really like, yeah. the king of comedy yeah it's like it's got everything i like in it <laughs> Mark scorsese like you know sadness rejection the idea of trying to be comedic yeah being sad you know celebrity culture Mm, uh, it's all in there for you it's a great film because you're going to be introducing it right oh yeah yeah at the royal i'll I'll, i will be there can you give us a taste of what you're going to get where you're going to say i think you might have already got some of it Uh, someone else died recently, Toby Hooper, director of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think you're a bigger fan of him than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does his death affect you? I always found Toby Hooper to be a kind of fascinating figure as a creative person who loves movies. If you hear him talk about films, he talks about them a lot of terms of what he could do and what he was trying to experiment, which is kind of odd when you look at the films that he made because he made horror films Mm -hmm. right and those are inherently considered a kind of cheap genre like 
his first big movie, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is undeniably a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Like, no contest. But then he follows that up with a weird, stage-bound, Tennessee Williams-esque slasher film called Eaten Alive, which is not very well-remembered. And that's mostly, like, the rest of his career. Toby Hooper was never a filmmaker that had, like, a Wes Craven-like reappraisal. Like, Wes Craven had Last House on the Left, he had Nightmare on Elm Street, he had Scream. Mm. Like, he was continually redefining his stamp on different eras. Toby Hooper had the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then he struggled a lot. I was stunned to learn that, you know, he was making very low-budget movies well into, like, this decade yep. that had just gone under the radar unnoticed. He made a film called Digit Dijin in another language mm. that came out a few years ago. It wasn't supposed to be very good. I haven't seen it. But he was still chugging along. All of his friends in his tributes just talked about how he was a filmmaker who was always watching movies and always finding interesting things. They knew that if there was one guy in a room who saw something, it was Toby Hooper. Which is funny because you don't usually associate him with that kind of cinephilia that you would give to someone like Peter Bogdanovich. Mm. But if you look at the way that he kind of approached the subjects that he tackled, he always did it in interesting if very flawed ways whether it be the slasher film in the fun house or his insane take on hammer horror films with life force mm. which if you haven't seen you should definitely check out um he was a filmmaker that not many people know was famous for being fired off projects mm. uh, he was fired off movies like the dark uh, he famously did not direct Poltergeist. Is that true? Yes, it's absolutely okay. true. Recently, there was an interview with a director slash cinematographer who worked on the crew uh, on Poltergeist. And he said that Toby Hooper was there, but Steven Spielberg was calling the shots. Mm. And I think that's undeniable when you watch the film. It's just the idea that, like, it'd be cool if Toby Hooper did make that film. I get the sense that that Poltergeist incident really hurt him yes. in his career and his reputation. Well, he was known as a very difficult filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Even the second, the film he made after Tex Chainsaw, Eaten Alive, he walked off sets a whole bunch of times and the cinematographer mm. had to take over. Mm. Um, and even films like uh, the triple bill that he did with Canon, which was Life Force, uh, and remake of Invaders from Mars, which is really underrated. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which, which I love. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is amazing. Yeah. But it's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1, right? Yeah. And I think that at the time, it did not do well mm -hmm. because people, that's not what they were expecting. He was always playing its expectations in a way that never did him any benefits. Mm -hmm. His remake of The Toolbox Murders, which was a DTV slasher film, is a fascinating Argento-esque <laughs> LA film with supernatural overtones which has almost nothing to do with its original source material but has been forgotten to time because it was a dtv film well two legends pour one out toby hooper and jerry lewis they're they're jamming with bowie right now 